live with our 218th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Ma <clears throat> at Seth Ma on X or Twitter or whatever you want to call it. I really don't care. Uh, Seth, say hi. Hey, uh, welcome back to another episode. We're really excited today. We've um, shifted the time a little bit for today's episode to accommodate our guest, Cole, and we will talk with Cole here shortly. Um, by way of announcements, just wanted to make sure that everyone who is listening, uh, if you haven't heard, we are doing a practical secure code review at um, in Seattle, uh, November 1st and 2nd, as a part of DEF CON trainings. Uh, the links will be up and available. They're on our social media, LinkedIn, what, what have you. So if you're interested in practical secure code review and learning what Ken and I have gleaned over the years on that, please, please feel free to jump in with us. Um, otherwise, um, I did want to give a shout out to our sponsor today, Redpoint Security. Redpoint specializes in code security for coders, bolstered by years of experience testing web and mobile applications, conducting secure code reviews, and including things like it, uh, including AI and Web3 applications. It also offers trainings to help ground your teams in better security practices across the development lifecycle. So check out redpointsecurity.com for more information and put your company on a path to better security. So thanks to Redpoint for sponsoring this episode. Um, otherwise, Ken, I, I don't think we have any other announcements outside of, you know, the we, we will be at a couple of conferences coming up here in the next few weeks. Um, but we can talk about that as we get into other things later this episode. Um, did you have any other no, that, that Yeah. Yeah, literally, that's what I was going to mention is that the Texas Cyber Security Summit, I think that sounds right. Uh, that's happening next week. I know I'm speaking on Friday. You're doing a workshop on Saturday. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct. Um, yeah. So that would be not this Friday and Saturday, but the next Friday and Saturday. Then uh, we will be at LastCon. Um, that is at the end, uh, towards the end of October. Uh, after immediately, almost immediately after uh, last con, we'll, we will go to uh, Global AppSec BC. You're, you're coming for Global AppSec BC or no? No, no I am. No. Okay, you are. I'm going to Global AppSec BC, <laughs> but then we are both immediately after that meeting up and doing um, training in Bellevue for uh, in Bellevue, Washington for DEF CON, uh, our secure code course. All right, I think that's everything. Yes. Um, yep. And then I was told I need to, I, I was, I was just informed by uh, two minutes ago by uh, someone who's on this podcast and I need to talk <laughs> a little bit more about my company. So I will just mention since we, we uh, have sponsored some happy hours now that dry run security, uh, we are entering into private beta. I am about ready to get uh, some handpicked friends to start using it. But the gist is, is that uh, it's a pretty simple flow to get started. It's a GitHub app. Uh, from there, we do a bunch of cool stuff. I'll probably not talk too much about all of that yet, but that's that's the gist. We help you sort of uh, surface risk in your uh, code that's changing and help you remediate it. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool, pretty novel, but anyways, that's what we're doing at Dryer. So, all right, having said all that, done the businessy thing, uh, back to the podcast. So, um, Seth, do you mind if I do some intros here? You, you go that right cool. ahead. You go right ahead. Yeah, just because I was just on Cole's uh, podcast, um, uh, Gala Cyber uh, um, has a podcast um, 
And we were just talking before this episode, and I think probably there's a lot of opinions that um, Cole has uh, from you know having built the consultancy, having worked in, in infosec, uh, you know, working out in in the. I mean, you know, I assume you, you've got clients everywhere, but obviously you yourself are based out of uh, Australia, and um, you know, I just think this is an, our opportunity to uh, learn a lot from Cole's experiences. I also think you have a lot of good thoughts regarding sort of training, where the industry's going and all that. But um, without further ado, uh, say hi, Cole. Uh, introduce yourself to everybody and, and uh, tell us a little bit about your origin story. And by the way, sorry, last thing, last thing, I'm really excited for this, is that we've been trying to get Cole, I have been trying to get Cole on this podcast forever. So this is amazing. So anyways, yes. without further ado, Cole, it's all you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. It's it's quite special to be on the podcast because I remember a few years ago you mailed a shirt to me and uh, yeah, you know I've been an active listener since 2016. I'd say so. It's a long time, right? <laughs> yeah, those are early days. There, there's some there's some rough episodes in there. So we're glad you stuck with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I um I think my my I'm pretty surprised at how my podcast is going. I you know considering that I'm pretty new to it as well. So you know all onwards and upwards, it's a learning experience, right? So yes, yeah. So for myself, I'm I'm Cole Cornford. I'm the MD of a company called Galar Cyber. Um, we chose Galar because it's a bright pink Australian bird, and they're uh, quite obnoxious, friendly, and approachable, and a bit of fun. And I think that most of the information security community is the opposite of that. So that's a <laughs> big reason that we wanted to kind of disrupt things as far as consulting goes. My background in AppSec is I was a software engineer after graduating for a few years in the, the late to early 2010s, um, just doing like small SMB kind of work and a bit of stuff for a local university where I'm from called Newcastle. Then I, um, graduated all that kind of area and buggered off to Canberra where I worked as a bit of a spook for a little while doing AppSec and the FedGov. Then I uh, decided, oh, yep, going to go into financial services, going to tech. I was going to move to Victoria, Canada. I actually was going to have some catch-ups with Tanya because I was going to move over that way to work for change.org and then COVID hit in 2020. And about that time I was it's a bit hard because you know I couldn't really move because all of the border closures, and I ended up saying, "Well, I'm sick of getting up at two to three in the morning just to work for this, uh, you know, international firm." So I'm going to run my own business, and yeah, I've been running Glass Cyber for a bit over two and a bit years. It's been a bit of fun experience um, coming directly from just being basically a permanent employee who hasn't really done any consulting at all. And then saying, yep, I'm going to start a consultancy with no experience and figure out how to do that. So I can tell you, don't do that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot to learn in a very short period of time. So that's where I've come from. I, I really cut my teeth on Fortify. That's that's like probably the funniest thing is when I started in the FedGov, I had all my, um, my entire team, as soon as I joined the AppSec function within the agency I was working at, the entire team basically vanished overnight and said, we're going to go create a sock call. You're in charge of AppSec now. And I was like, great. All right. I'm going to gonna go read the entirety of OWASP. And uh, yep, that's I'm good at AppSec now, right? So <laughs> so those are my early days here. A bit of a you know trial by fire. Yeah. So uh, 
Fortify. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> we have feelings about Fortify, right? Like, and, you know, static analyzers in general, right? Um, so was that really your first then introduction or, you know, where, like, your path, like, in that, you know, larger organization into the AppSec firm, right? Like, was it just because you were interested in that? Like, where, where did that transition happen for your, or how did it happen? Yes, yeah, so I think there's a few things. So um, I've always had an interest in security, and that stemmed from video games. So I used to do a lot of speed running, specifically of Ocarina of Time, if you know that yes. game. Yes. So I used to like doing something called Reverse Model Adventure, where which is basically a um, just an off-by-one error for memory management that lets you get all of the items in the game really early on. Right. Yeah. And that's obviously a software bug. So I've always had like a mild curiosity about how to get, do games fast, which really is the way of doing pen testing because you're hacking software. Right. And the other thing I like as well about um, AppSec as opposed to a lot of other parts of InfoSec is that you're still doing software engineering and you also need to be quite good at communicating and empathizing and working with people to solve problems. And I felt that if I went down the ethical hacking route, Oftentimes, it's like tick and flick reports. And if I went down the GRC route, I'd be completely losing my um, you know, tech chops, basically. I wouldn't be able to talk with a lot of engineers about why are they using Svelte over Vue, over React, or whatever. So I, I like that it balanced all three things I'm interested in, which is like writing, public speaking, clear communication, technical chops, and security. So mm-hmm. no, that's a, yeah, that's good. I, I mean, Part of me wants to go down the you know the side quest of uh, Zelda speedruns and you know how you got into that, but you know we we can leave that to another day because I, I like all those sorts of things fascinate me. Coming up from a computer science background, right? Like you know bit flipping, like speedruns, the things that you people have been able to do over the years, you know, with those cartridge-based games, right? Like and you know the the stuff that's built into it, it feels like a huge fuzz test, right? Like and sometimes the fuzzing does really cool things and interesting things so it's not surprising to me that you made that you know that you made that jump um so it like look well, yeah I, I'm, I'm not sure where you want to go and I, I like to, to be frank right like i haven't even listened to ken's episode yet it's on my list and it's for downloaded <laughs> on my phone i'm just Shame. like I'm, I'm i'm behind the time so um but uh I do like, I, I'm interested to hear about Gala Cyber, like what your experience there has been, like why it is you're saying don't do it, right? Because <laughs> I, I know I have my experiences over the years as a, you know, as a as a consulting and the, you know, the, the cycle that we go through every like three months, it feels like of, you know, fe- feast or famine. But um, like, what was the, like, so the main impetus there for you creating your own thing was just, hey, it's, you know, the firm, like I'm working internationally, I'm tired of getting up early. Um, did you have like initial clients locally that you started to work with? Is that what what started it or how did that come so, about? You like, like this story. So during code, I was, you know, working 2 a.m. till 11 because that's uh, um, BC slash SF time zones, right, for Australia. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And... Then what I would do was I'd finish, I'd eat some lunch, have a beer, and I'd just go and swim in my pool for about three or four hours because I had nothing better to do because I was a COVID, right? So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then 
my wife said to me, why don't you just stop being lazy and swimming in your pool for three to four hours after work and just do a side hustle, mate, so we can buy a house in the future. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. <laughs> so I rang up a bunch of my mates and I was like, yo, do you, do you need like AppSec? And eventually one of them was like, actually, yes, we have no one come help us. Yes. So, <laughs> so uh, that was my introduction into consulting pretty much. And then I was like, well, I think I can make a business out of this because apparently people are, you know, interested in solving these kind of problems. Maybe I should just like try working out who else's problems I need to solve. Um, and so I went through the whole rigmarole of having to look, being coming from being a technical app set consultant to learning how to do sales. So, you know, understanding how to ban to medic qualify candidates and getting target account lists and all that kind of rubbish that no one wants to hear about on this podcast. Um, being I don't know. Some people, some people might, yeah. who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got this all the, um, you know, all the marketing. So you probably see that we're, we're extremely bright pink and obnoxious and out there. And, and that's intentional because almost every straight like Australian infosec company is indistinguishable from a men's deodorant commercial as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> So <laughs> I, I really wanted to be like, yeah, we're, we're bright, we're out good, we're, we're fun, we're approachable, we're happy. Um, and so marketing is a really big key for getting, like attracting and winning work as well. And I've had to learn all these extra things in addition to being a, te a technical specialist in application security too. So I've got a lot of thoughts about that because I've been spending a lot of time working on the business. So I get to actually have a bit more time to think about what's working or what's not working holistically. but. Yeah, the, the reason I encourage people, maybe don't start your business, but maybe go into contracting first or go work at a consulting firm first so you can understand um, basically the, the whole model of partner, manager, associate before you jump into it yourself. Because unless you understand that, you're not going to be able to scale out your business. And yeah, that's that's something I've had to um, struggle with in the past. So <laughs> yeah, that is true too, because there's like, I mean, it's always a question of when to, when to hire people. Sometimes it's super obvious when to hire, you know, there's just direct need, but there is that sort of like, uh, as time goes on, when do I, when do I start thinking about maybe like a technical editor, writer kind of person introducing them into the fold or a project manager to actually manage all of these projects or, uh, I forget the, um, uh, I don't want to say her name on the podcast, uh, the liaison between clients, not, not a project manager, but, uh, uh hold on so service I'm gonna, delivery I'm consultant private chat the, <laughs> I, I think it's a service delivery person or a customer success manager um those yeah. kind of people inside sales uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah i put uh, it in private chat her her name yeah let's see. i forget yeah, I the name of that that role but it was basically that's what it was it was essentially a liaison with the client to make sure that they were they were um getting what they need. It wasn't necessarily a project management. I don't think it was a project management role. It's more just like, uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, clients, figuring out when to hire or, these people. Yeah. yeah. How to maximize like your spend. And then like, I'm sure you both, let me ask you this question. I mean, how do you guys, how have you guys from the, from the very, from when you started as just you Cole and just you Seth to now, how does, how does the back office stuff kind of change for you? I know that's, you think that that people don't care. I actually am interested in that for obvious reasons, but I am curious for others too. I know, I know that's just an interesting, yeah. Customer success is probably what it was. Leisure suit, Larry. So um, did you want to get into that first and then I can jump in? Um, sure. I, 
for me, it's, it is still like even, you know, running what five people as we are now, it's still very dependent on me, right? Like it's, um, there's, there's a lot of things that I have used tech and, you know, um, scripting and, you know, just reminders to actually run through, you know, um, but especially like, um, anything that's available that's like for a startup or for a smaller mid-sized company, uh, like I find myself actually using a lot of those services, right? Because, hey, it takes it off my plate, right? Um, but it is still very dependent on me, right? Like a couple of years ago um, in the States, it was, hey, we want uh, like, we had a couple of people on board. They wanted, we wanted to start doing retirement, right? Like it's, it's not like there's, you can't go to a large, you know, fidelity or a large brokerage or whatever as a three-person company and be like hey you know will you host our 401k they're just not interested right um and so it it you know it falls to you as the business owner or the you know the founder to actually figure that out i mean i think ken you're running into that some some of that as it is but i, I mean for me it still is very much a you know self-induced uh i don't know how do I want to say it? Self-inflicted, right? Like process in a lot of that on a monthly basis. I don't know. I mean, Cole, do you have people that you that are helping you out on that? Yeah. So I can I can talk about uh, failures and success. So um, I'm going to say I hired too early, and I got someone to do um, operations for me, and they mm -hmm. managed everything from contracts, statement of works, invoicing, um, getting timesheets in, um, managing like uh, payments for staff member superannuation, which is retirement. Just doing all those kind of nitty-gritty nuts and bolts stuff but the problem is that eats into your margins quite tremendously and so yep. what i've done is just said like after i realized that i just couldn't do that sustainably when we had a tech um, downturn i've just like had to go and look at what can i do myself and the answer is actually a lot of automation so um mm -hmm. and to look at changing the way that you do your services into a way that you can easily structure it if you have like a price book or you have flat fee services or fixed prices, then the administration overhead for creating a statement of work is like tremendously lower Jeez, than having to do yeah. it bespoke every single time. And so for one of the, a few of the things that I'm looking at doing is, um, for example, developer training, the content almost never changes. And if I ask for changes, then we just do direct consulting on top of that so that I don't have to change it, change the SOWs change the content, do any of the extra administrative stuff to sort that out. Um, pay runs and everything like that. It's, I just let my accounts manage all of that. HR outsourced to um, a HR service, so I don't have to sort that. Same legals. The um, I think that the biggest time sink by far is sales foe. And mm -hmm. if you are like hiring other salespeople, it's I've, I have, I've had mixed success with it. I think founder-led sales is really important because people you have both technical expertise and people are willing to listen to you because you don't appear to be the salesperson. Whereas a salesperson already starts from a low bar because they just think they're a lowly salesperson and they have to make their way up to actually have a conversation. I find that's the hardest part as a founder, not so much all of the backend stuff. So, because yeah. at least at the backend stuff, you can write software, you can outsource the different agencies. There's, there's way to, you can structure your services to be fixed so you don't have to stress all that much about the admin of it so yep that's smart well, just having I, those templates that you can yeah sorry yeah so. no i yeah like i i would agree right like i feel like 
the the sales cycle, right? Like, and it, I mean, it's your bread and butter as a consulting firm as it is, right? Like, you know, so offloading something, if it takes a little, you know, a little bit longer for some of the invoices to go out or whatever it is from a, you know, backend perspective or the, you know, the accountant takes a couple extra days getting payroll put together, like you're not going to suffer. But if we don't have the pipeline filled up with projects, that means that everything else falls off behind the scenes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm with you there because I, I feel like that's where I end up spending a lot of my time naturally is, yeah, I want to be involved in those discussions up front, right? Like, even if I have somebody else helping write the sow or like, you know, get the sow out the door, I'm in that initial discussion. And um, I, I've struggled with how to get out of it and still have it be as effective, right? Um, yep. Yeah. That's, that's always going to be a challenge is when you want to scale up your business is how do you as a director move yourself out of those conversations, right? And I think that until you get to probably 20 people, it's really challenging to do that because you have no choice when you get to 20 people. You have to relinquish control at, at some point. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're you're stuck, right? You you can only scale up to that point because um, then you, your entire calendar looks like BD meetings you don't have any time left over. One yeah. option I think is I haven't, I'm actually looking at doing, and I don't think other people are doing yet is a managed app sake offering. Um, and the reason I like this one is it's consistent cash flow. So you just say that for X amount of money per month, we're going to do um, lunch and learns, dev training, white box, pen testing, front modeling, whatever. And then you just like pay out a year of it and tell them what all of the different inclusions are within it. And then it, it means that your invoicing is really straightforward because every single month it's flat. Um, you get stickier company uh, companies because, you know, you can make terms favorable if they choose to leave early and you're helping them over the long term, which I think a lot of the consultancy firms tend to do a single point in time assessment or engagement and then disappear until they have money again. So mm -hmm. that's that's another way that you could structure your business to be able to um, at least be either exit ready in the future because companies are recurring revenue are valued a lot higher than companies that have to do project based sales work. But for me, it just um, as I move more people in this direction, um, it means I can take advantage of the free tier model a lot better whilst and have to worry a lot less about finding new and new work. So, yeah. No, I, I yeah, I, I mean, that's a really good point, right? Like I'm thinking, you know, across my like book and like what we're currently doing now. And it's definitely we've got clients that we have. I, I mean, we're we call them like retainer agreements with them, right? Like, but it's managed AppSec services where we're in there and we do, oh, we're doing some training. We're doing like a code review on this this month. And like we just kind of plan it out and they have like a set number of, you know, things or hours that they can use on a monthly basis. And it's been pretty effective because we've seen, we've seen those companies go from pretty immature to, yeah, now when we look at things or they contact, the developers are contacting us on like a, a regular cycle, um, we're not finding the same level of vulnerabilities or the same severity of vulnerabilities as we did. And they've also leveled up the different like different ways that they're implementing CERC security into their pipeline. And so we're starting to have discussions where, you know, forgive the phrase again, but, you know, pushing more further left into their, into their cycle because we are there on a daily basis and they know that we're not just 
hey, here's a vulnerability, and then we're out, right? Um, I think I think yeah. one of the, the problems of that model, though, is you're still stuck with a TNM arrangement, and also mm -hmm. time and materials for those listening, because even if you're doing part-time uh, retainer two days a week, that's still like an accounting fix in, in a way, if you think about it, instead of having a point-in-time assessment of a, a month or two months uh, bundled here, you just spread that out over a year. And so it's it seems like it's a retainer, but actually you're still in an engagement where you're effectively being paid a day rate. And mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is bunt, like get the value of the service that we provide and get that taken away from an individual day rate of an individual person, because then okay. that's how you can get a business to scale because people perceive you from value, not from my contractor is worth this much per day. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, yeah. uh, that's all weird business nerdy stuff. So I'm sorry if I <laughs> no, no, I, it, it, you're you're not right. Like because it it does become a, a question of what the valuation is, and, and like I, I think I I told you, Ken. Like we've got another friend, Alex, that runs a consulting firm, and that's been his big question lately. Is okay, you know, if I do, he's seeing like some of the acquisitions and some of the mergers that have gone on stateside with different consulting firms and he's been asking okay what does evaluation look like how do i value my 15 to 20 person consulting firm and you know and actually sell that off what do i need to do to increase the value so it looks more attractive on paper there's three things i've always been told that you get acquired for it's your ip it's your contracts and it's your oh gosh your contracts your ip and oh your your, your, your staff. people so if you've got yeah. some like crazy good staff um for one reason or another maybe you got some some all-stars on on your team or whatever anyways those are the those are those are the main reasons people do tend to get acquired and i will say though with services not to paint a bleak picture but i mean the common i'm not saying this is even accurate i'm just saying with what is the common sort of uh, statement about services versus product is a product is typically at least a 10 X exit. I mean, that's not always obviously true, um, but uh, services seems to hold true to be like, you know, two to three X in comparison. So the, the trade-off for the effort versus the payout is a, uh, I, I mean, I really can't say that they've got their pros and cons. I can't even say it's effort. Um, there, there are pros and cons to both, but it just always has seemed to me that services is a, it's a very difficult business, um, at least in the way that it's been done um, previously. And one challenge, because you mentioned this, and I'm going to take this off the screen. We can get back to this here in a second. But um, one thing you mentioned, or one, one thing, I guess it actually kind of plays into this question, is like in the early days, because, you know, there's questions about how do you get a pipeline going when you're just starting out. Um, in the early days, I know for like Seth and I, it's... Uh, once you've been doing stuff long enough and you've, you've worked with people long enough, whether those are engineers or whether it's security people, the second you pretty much come out of the woodwork saying, Hey, I'm free. Like, uh, and I am, you know, up for doing consulting. Usually you do get hit up by at least like, you know, a few people. Right. Um, that's kind of your, your, your first entry in. And then, you know, what you do to really build your business is just do an excellent job, do a lot of meetups, do a lot of conferences, you know, blogging, open source projects, like all, all the formulas that you hear about, right. That gives you, that gives you some, some ability to get some, some street cred or whatever you want to call it that brings in clients. But the problem that I, and you mentioned this Cole, I saw was once you do hit 20 people, 
you do have a much different um, set of challenges. The the challenges you talked about, they change. You know, you do have to have timesheets and just back off stuff, back off of stuff like in place. But the 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 people that you brought in to the that you brought as customers to the company, they came there because of you and you know a couple other people, right? Um, so like let's say me and Seth or you, Cole. And then, but now you've got all these other folks doing doing projects for them. And what I found to be difficult was quality control. When you get above like 20, you're still in the low enough, like small business that it's very important that everybody, I mean, I shouldn't say it's ever not important, but it's incredibly important just from like um, staying alive as a business that people are happy with what happens. But unfortunately you can't a hundred percent always guarantee that you can come back and you can fix stuff if if maybe something goes awry but it's it's not like how do i say it Seth? even if it were just you and i stuff's gonna go awry like you know your clients aren't always gonna be happy somebody's gonna be upset that you didn't talk about some http only flag on some useless cookie that somebody else audited you know shit just happens and you have to deal with it but it, I, I just feel like once you reach above that 20 number it's it's much harder to actually keep quality control and uh i don't know like um if you have any tips for well let's first let's just break it into two parts first of all first of all first of all let's answer talus's question about how do you get work in the beginning let's start there secondly okay. uh part two to that would be the other bits here how do you maintain quality okay. control okay so we'll start with how to get work and then we'll go into um how to maintain quality etsy scale so let's start with that with um how to get work um, so we always talk about um, the idea that you effectively have a funnel and in sales and you want to basically get lots of things at the top of the funnel that eventually drip down into qualified people you want to speak with and then book services with, right? The only way to really get a funnel is to actually start cold calling people in B2B. Now, that how do you cold call the right people? How do you get the phone numbers? How do you get access to business? I know that sounds terrible. But like if your network will get exhausted really quickly and if all you're doing is um, going onto LinkedIn and just checking to see who your friends are and asking them, you're probably going to have like maybe three, 400 prospects and of those only about 40 are actually going to be in a situation where they want something done. And then of those 40, only 10 of them are actually wanting to go ahead with your services. And that's not enough to sustain a business. So you need to go hunting for new business. Now, firms I've seen scale up tend to hire SDRs which are sales development representatives. And what they're keen on doing is picking up the phone. Um, you have a target account list. You use LinkedIn Sales Navigator or something like that. Go through, find all of the target personas that you want to go and just have a conversation with them and say, um, hey guys, are you, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm rude, but I know that this, you don't know me from a bar of soap. Let's uh, just, just see that you're head of engineering um, at XYZ company. So I just, just wanted to understand, do you guys have any challenges with security? Um, do you need to train developers or something? Like, oh, it's all good, you don't like me, or I'll see you later. So the main idea is if you don't have phone calls, you're not picking up the phone and making these, having these discussions with people, then you've got no way to actually build your funnel because you're relying effectively on going to in-person events, which doesn't scale because you know, you're basically preaching to the converted at that point. You need to be speaking to new new people. If you're going to a conference, there's a good chance that everybody already knows who you are. And so there's not much point of trying to preach to those people. The people you want to speak to with don't go to conferences. They are sitting on LinkedIn. They're just doing their jobs and they just may not even be aware that the problem exists. Right. So I, I advocate for people to 
initially figure out what target accounts you want to go after, what kind of roles that those businesses that you want to target are, and then go and source the phone numbers and email addresses and stuff for those people and just be kind and courteous. And then if they say they're not interested, follow up with them six months later, right? Um, otherwise, you're not going to be able to scale out your business. And I know that people are going to be super annoyed to hear that I pick up the phone and speak with people. But um, we've got to do that as sales, right? Otherwise, you're going to be stuck. Now, second question was about scale, right? Um, so I think I kind of managed, answered that question is basically you need, if you have your service offerings productized, so like it's extremely clear what people are getting, like a pen test is 40K. It's always 20 days or whatever, fixed price or something like that. And it, the thing, deviations cost a bunch of extra money or something. And then you have an extremely regimented process, then you should be able to make it so that juniors can follow that process and get to an acceptable level of quality without having to do too much difference, right? So if you're a pen testing firm, why not say that we follow WSTG, we're going to, this is the day rate and what you're going to be getting out of it. Here is everything that you've gotten from it. I know I'm probably going to get some slack from probably Eric from InclusSec about not being like a perfect technical specialist and stuff, but I think when you do, <laughs> I, look, you can go down the, the route where you have a firm that is like four to seven principal consultants who are amazing, but we're talking about the 20 consultant firm that wants to scale with the free tier model, right? Because the, the four to seven consultant firm, yeah, just go do great pen tests and be the best, right? That's all well and good. But if you're the, you know, if you're trying to be a bigger firm, you need to leverage junior talent. Otherwise, you have no ability to scale your business, right? And the best mm -hmm. way to make junior talent effective is to give them really strong processes and also to make sure that you um, put them on lower risk engagements. So, which it could be something as simple as like code reviews, um, uh, penetration tests, uh, lunch and learn series, those kind of activities where you can actually manage the quality and just do a quick spot check to see where it's at and give people really regimented process to follow. You don't want them to be doing any client facing stuff. So, <laughs> but yeah, the 20, that is a, it's a real problem for so many firms to get to that 20 person scale because you need to hire the middle tier. You need that management tier. Otherwise mm -hmm. you're, and then your rates have to go up to compensate for that. And you're going to lose a lot of your earlier clients. And the only way to fix that is to go to market, get a bunch of SDRs and start cold calling people to build your funnel. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I know. How do you track your funnel? I mean, are you using, um, any particular software or just in a spreadsheet? I'm curious only because like Seth and I have both gone through the, the gone through the hassle of a <laughs> fairly complicated funnel setup before in, in a, was it Salesforce? Is that what it was? Can't yeah. We had a couple. Um, any, any, in any case, I'm not sure if you, if you use anything for that. I'm, I'm only asking because, you know, honestly, this is stuff that you think you may think is not interesting to people it actually is. Yep. So um, I'm really basic. I, I use um, Sales Navigator Advanced um, to be able to identify target accounts. Um, I can't remember, but it's like a free service that just like basically you give people's names and it gives you phone numbers and email addresses, right? Um, email addresses are useless because no one reads anything. You just want the phone numbers because um, unfortunately people pick up the phone. They don't, they don't read emails. So, and um, so Sales Navigator basically gives me a list of prospects and then I put them into HubSpot. And then in HubSpot, which is a CRM-like Salesforce, um, I try to do a few things. Is one, I want to understand how many touch points they have had 
in like with my marketing material. And the reason is that if I can, like, cause in LinkedIn, you can actually kind of work out whether people have had touch points with your blog posts by clicking on it or scrolling past it with um, any posts your page does with things that I do, so on and so forth. Um, so you can look at those analytics and I find that the better sales processes happen if people have had six to eight touch points before you engage them with a cold call because then they recognize who you are and what, you, what you're trying to say. And then you can point and say, hey, I saw that you downloaded this asset from my website or you were interested in like talking to me, like you, you read my blog post about uh, Golang security or something. Um, is Golang something that you use? So basically the, the, the point being that um, I like to track how often that they engage with marketing material first and then people get close to my point where they've had enough um, nurturing that a cold call is not going to make them angry at me is when I call them and I find that's about six to eight and then I just track the conversations in HubSpot. So, and nice. I'm not very good at um, writing in HubSpot myself because I don't know, I find it insanely boring. So props to all of the salespeople. Like I'm an AppSec person. I'm not, a, I'm not really a salesperson. So sitting there and saying that I had a chat with this guy and he hates me does, isn't really the uh, <laughs> thing I want to be putting in the HubSpot. But that's, um, and that's how I do it. Like, and I think it's, it, what's really good for me is I spend a lot of time early on, like really making sure I understand what personas I really want to target, which for me is for mid-market companies, I want to be hitting up CTOs, head of engineering, head of DevOps, um, basically anyone who's not a security professional, um, and for big companies, um, like just head of security capabilities, uh, AppSec managers, head of AppSec product security, um, and because generally the, the bigger companies don't have, like you, you can't go up to the top. It just doesn't work unless you already know that person very well, at least for the smaller companies, they recognize it's a problem and they don't really know how to deal with it. So you can actually have some conversations and they're willing to have a cold call with you so but yeah sales right <laughs> well so we picked your brain a, a lot about uh essentially <laughs> running running a business and starting it up i think it's time to get into some spicier topics oh um, yeah I want, to, what I, want are to, you, I want to start what, what 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 are you thinking we're gonna we're gonna talk about mgm and uh you know what's going on in las vegas or no, no just <laughs> No, I want to talk about training Ooh, because this has okay. been a reoccurring. There's like mm -hmm. a a rumbling amongst the the industry, and mm -hmm. uh, you know some are public about it, some are private. But there's rumblings that training it's problematic. And uh, in any case, I wanted to continue the conversation that we kind of started, but didn't really get too deep into Cole, and just start picking your brain, get your thoughts on where you think. You know, let's talk about application security training, um, pros and cons. You know, what, what do you think needs to change, if anything? Um, yeah, let's delve into it. Yeah, so I think there's basically the kind of two ways I've seen people really approach training, right? Is there's a um, productized platform of some variety. Um, I know that you've, you're probably aware of which ones. I don't like to bag them out. Yeah, I was, yeah. Yep, so, or you have like instructor-led in-person kind of stuff, right? And I think that neither of those work particularly well because gen the problem with instructor-led training a lot of time is that even though you have a captive audience and you have an expert, you need to, you can't scale it beyond 20 people in a room at a time. And when you're dealing with like a large workforce that's potentially um, distributed, then 
you're not going to be able to get to as many people as you'd like to. And then the only option you have really is to do it virtually. And if you're doing it virtually, they're going to be in the background doing laundry. They're going to be like picking up their kids and changing nappies. Like that's what I do in a lot of my bloody calls because I, I work from my home a lot of the time. Why, why wouldn't I, right? So I, I can totally understand why other people are getting distracted, at least if they're in person, they have a captive audience, yeah? But then you go down the other route where they say, oh, cool, okay, so we know that these don't work, so we're going to build some kind of training platform. And then to actually scale it out, you need to build content that's agnostic. And a lot of engineers are looking for really specific bits of content. So you end up with a whole lot of lists like saying, here's the OWASP top 10 in a little bit more detail and then sticking to just Java because that's what most enterprises use. And you have a Golang developer saying, well, I, what? I don't understand. Or like a Laravel person saying, yeah, but you know, why am I worrying about output encoding when the framework takes care of it for me? You know, So you end up with a lot of unhappy engineers and they kind of get annoyed at the platform. But the other problem as well is that even if you buy a license for a lot of these platforms, you, there's an opportunity cost to actually using it. So any engineer needs to, one, already have an interest in security before they'll start learning of more security. Because so if you, if you just buy 20 licenses, it's a good chance that only two out of those 20 people are actually going to actively use the platform. But we actually care about the other 18 people because the two people who are using the platform that they already care about security. So of their own volition, they're going to be putting the SEM greps and the fortifiers and the sneaks and stuff in their pipelines and doing threat modeling and trying to advocate for security anyway. But so they're not the ones that are introducing the risk. It's the other 18 people who don't care, who want to learn about performance or internationalization or accessibility or um, code maintenance or whatever's interesting to them. And if yeah, these 18 people are not engaging and they're not of their own accord wanting to use these platforms, then basically you're paying a lot of money to train like 10% of your workforce, right? So I don't think either is going in the right direction yet. I think we need to think about how do we engage those people besides sitting them down in a room and telling them to listen to me or you? <laughs> or we need to think about the our online training platforms and try to maybe build performance or accessibility and then marry that with security to make it more interesting for people. Because right now I just I haven't really seen dev training work terribly well unless it's for a really small company with a trusted group of engineers. So mm -hmm. look at that spicy, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very, very spicy. There's a lot of points to break down there. Uh, yeah. But so Seth, I'll, I'll hand over because I'm writing a response, but uh, to, to one of the Slack chats. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, ooh, training. Yes. Um, my uh, yeah. My question to you is then where do you where do you see it going? Right. Like you know, um, it it's it's great to say. Hey, the the model is somewhat broken now, um, and I, you know, if you've been in the industry long enough, I think we've all seen that, right? Like during COVID, we had all the everything went to online training. Ken and I tried to do that quite often, and you know, the the classes definitely suffer for it. Like people turning off their cameras, doing other things. To your point, right? Like, um, and then the length of the trainings, we run into problems there as well. Um, mainly because people will only stay engaged for so long. Even in a classroom setting, you go over three or four hours, you're doing a, a day-long training, and you, you lose people, right? Like, I, all of us get tired of that, right? And so 
the cost goes up because you've got people in, you know, you're, you're dedicating them in office and like, there's all of these competing factors. What do you see as actually effective, right? Like you're saying, you're trying to reach these, you know, this 80, 90% of the developer population with security, with some sort of security training, but what do you, what have you seen as effective when it comes to that? Yeah. So I think teaching classes or vulnerability types and stuff is not helpful um, mm -hmm. because then you got to remember, you know, a few thousand things, right? The difference between a CSERF and SSRF and an XMLE or whatever, um, at some point they're going to forget that kind of stuff. Like I've forgotten the difference between a deck and a queue in computer science 11 years ago, right? I think a deck you can only put one thing on the front. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not good at my data structures, and by the same token, I would expect that they would not be good at remembering every security vulnerability. So, what I advocate for is actually to look at process and um, thinking about how do we actually manage vulnerabilities in a way that I'm enabling people to write like software within risk tolerances and make good educated decisions. Or how do I introduce processes around how to do threat modeling and documenting the outcomes of those so that you can show that we have think, thought about security and make it inclusive as a group. I, I don't think um, the way that we do secure code training where we just go sit down with engineers and just talk about every like Here's how to run all these different types of tools and get overwhelmed with them is particularly helpful. I don't think running for bug classes is helpful. I think trying to influence the engineering workflow so that it has um, guardrails in the process, not in, the, not in CI, not in, not in CD, um, but in the process of running sprints and scrum and doing PR planning, uh, sorry, PI planning and having OKRs related to security and technical debt mitigation. That's, that's a real strong way of helping manage security risk because People are actively thinking about it, even if it's not something that they, you know, care about all that much. And it's something that they're getting measured on as part of yep. their core business requirements. But I think a lot of the CTOs that I talk with, I'm um, just say, I want to do security. I'm not sure where to begin. How do I go about getting engineers engaged? Do I just teach them about the OWASP top 10, which, you know, I, I, I like the top 10. I think it's a good engagement model to, but at the same time, you're remembering like 10 bug classes and that's a lot. So I, I like the having people to say like, you know, show stacks, four questions, threat modeling approach. I, I think that's an excellent yeah, it. building. Yeah. Like, Cause it's anyone can participate in the discussion, your product owners, your business owner, your, um, you know, QA person. And that makes the conversations a lot more fulfilling for engineers. Another thing I'm excited about is uh, the potential for AI. Um, because I know that it'll hallucinate and produce stupid stuff in the ID a bunch. But if I'm going to be honest, um, most of the time we run any of our static analysis or SCA tools, they basically come back with 50% false positives anyway. So like, what's what's the difference between like hard-coded password false positives versus chat GPT saying you shouldn't hard-code a password and, you know. Right this... there with you. <laughs> so I, I think there's a lot of potential in there if we're actually able to spend some time to build the system on expert training sets instead of just the internet's collection of like content farm articles about why it's important to buy XYZ SaaS product to shift left. Um, I did right then. <laughs> but, um, the, main, the main thing for me though, is that I, I think that security training, like 
really needs to change and like whether it's the delivery of it so that it's contextualized and like in the ID and relevant at that point in time for engineers or that we're changing processes instead of having people remember esoteric bits of knowledge so yeah well and I, oh, I mean I'm that was actually there. yeah as you were digging into it right like even before you mentioned uh Showstack and his like you know four questions um I like I went to Jivan Singh's, you know, security engineering threat modeling, right? Like this, um, like where I've seen it effective or I've seen security training effective and changing cultures has been where you just get the developers thinking about security during their normal day, right? And and not even they have to solve the problems, but just mainly, hey, what could go wrong with this feature, right? Um, just that simple thought is not something that naturally occurs to them. Um, so any way that you can introduce that just level of, I, I mean, it's almost superficial security, but it but it's not because it changes behavior. Um, that's probably more effective than look what you can do with SQL injection, right? Because we don't see that anymore. So yeah, I'm with you there. Um, I just, I, I, as a trainer, I struggle with how to actually push that, right? Um, and, you know, because I, we do get a lot of the compliance-based trainings where it's, hey, well, you know, PCI or, you know, whatever regulation says that I have to do security training. So come in and teach my developers security, right? Um, and, yeah. This is I, a, dis I, a yeah. discussion I have a lot, actually, is that when your security... Um, like program is driven by compliance activity. That's actually quite at odds with doing a lot of the AppSec work that we want to be doing because most good application security has its basis in risk and making decisions based on risk. And if you're instead thinking in terms of lists of activities to complete, then it, the content's going to be dry and like, you know, boring and engineers are doing it because it's a checkbox activity and you're not really targeting the right behaviors. Um, so I find that with dev training, the most success I have is definitely with um, engineer, like with organizations that manage their infosec programs for risk, not for just following compliance standards. Yeah. Yep. I, I want to say this about threat models and going back to what you had mentioned about threat models, which like, um, if I was to give training, honestly, I think these days, if you were to ask me right now, that's where I would prioritize training. And the reason is, is you mentioned that um, we give we give we give developers tools, security tooling to to alert on things. Like you mentioned, half the time it might be useful at best and, and accurate. Most of the time, not whatever. Um, but that's what we give them for pattern matching. There's two types of flaws as I was thinking about. Like literally, as you were talking, I was thinking about, man, there really are like two separate things there. There's the, like, there's the, the, the tooling, the kind of pattern matching. And then there's the, this is where I think threat models kind of coalesce with this, which is where's just like general problems where things could like, how do I know if this is something I should even be thinking about while I code, like as a potential risk or what risk should I be thinking about? And that really is, you know, that sounds so easy to us in AppSec, but being somebody who writes code like these days it feels like 24 7 right it's like i'll get into situations where i'm coding I'm like holy crap like wait a second wait wait i gotta back out and zoom out there's some risk here i don't know why my intuition just from experience tells me i need to back out and like zoom out real quick and just 
do a mini threat model real quick, not writing anything down, just looking through this and, and seeing like, okay, is this, and a couple times it was like, oh yeah. I mean, thankfully I've got that, that ability to, 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 to zoom out just from, cause that is my, my prior, primary job, but th this isn't the primary job of most engineers. Right. So like that hasn't been their, their, their background. So then it's Ultimately, like, well, it's like where it's they cognitive actually, overload, right? It's too much. Yeah. Exactly. It's too, it's too much. And so for, for just being able to know that, that like, Hey, there's, there's something as I'm writing this, I need to think about like, that's where I think training towards more of like risk and threat modeling. That's how I see it being more applicable directly. Um, yeah, if you look at my website's uh, training about just secure engineering, you'll see that the prop, the first three sections are basically based around um, let's talk about uh, risk so you can have meaningful conversations with information security professionals. Um, let's talk about like, you know, I know it's kind of a plug, but like your software architecture patterns and then eventually moving into code security patterns. But the idea is that we start at the top level sort of like, cause I, there's so many times where I've spoken with an engineer and said that we need to control this risk because it is high. And they're like, how do you get to high? What is control? I don't know what these terms mean. And I think it's really important to have a shared language. And if people can't talk to each other and they talk past each other, then that's going to be a problem. And honestly, most information security professionals I've met in Australia don't have software engineering jobs. And I think that that also makes it really difficult because it means that they can't have meaningful conversations about, you know, like code maintenance or um, velocity of engineering. Uh, testability, any of those kind of things. And because of that, like the infosec professionals get frustrated and talk past engineers. Engineers get frustrated and talk past infosec people, right? So I really wanted to try to bridge that gap because it's a lot easier to teach a software engineer infosec than it is to teach infosec people software engineering, at least in my experience, right? But yeah, I, I agree. Cognitive, like having to remember too many things at once is bloody hard. Um, security is just like one of 12 different non-functional requirements. So if you have an engineer who's caring about accessibility, about performance, about um, internationalization, whatever it is, um, and they have to remember security as well, that's that's really, really challenging. So I know there's been a big shift to say, hey, why don't we just like create, um, you know, like golden path images that people have to use because we have a platform engineering team in place to just give people beautiful Docker containers that are good so they don't have to think about container security or the cloud environments are done, spun up with Bicep or Terraform or whatever so that they natively don't have open S3 buckets. The problem I have with you know those kind of approaches is that unfortunately 95% of the work that we do on software is on Brownfield's work that we've already done on legacy software. So telling people to build entirely new platforms is not realistic. <laughs> 100%. And, and even if you get, get all of that right, that doesn't guarantee, and that's it's kind of the crux of a lot of security things, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee <laughs> the best outcome or a good outcome, just guarantees that the, there are certain things that are covered now and uh, many others that still aren't. Um, yeah. And some innovation still needed in the, the, the training space, I would say for sure, and, or or maybe not. I mean, do you think that a do you think that a training a better training product is needed? Do you think a reevaluation of how we think about tr training altogether and like because I mean I think one of the things you'd thrown out to me was it sounded like almost like um, actually yeah can, can you talk through that like how do you think the solution would work in real time? Um, cause that's what you were, you were mentioning. I'm trying to 
dig back my memory banks, but I believe that's what you were mentioning is like real time master coding, getting feedback that then gives them a sense of training. Yep. And devs so, already have but, a lot on their plate. Yeah, there's a lot of cognitive load and a lot on their plate. So, so one thing um, I think back to is how I learned AppSec really early on, which is, uh, you'll love it, the Volmcat database from Fortify uh, at that time by HP Enterprise, I believe. So before it got spun out to Microfocus and all of that, the Volmcat database had experts write extremely good content about pretty much every vulnerability class. And that was a really good way to just get a good understanding about how the different types of bug classes exist with detained analysis and all of that. And I was thinking to myself, well, we now have the ability to basically generate similar levels of content as people write code. So I just don't see a reason why we wouldn't be able to have some kind of in IDE, extremely simple static analysis kind of tool that then just automatically shows, hey, this looks like it could be a SQL injection vulnerability. Here's a bit of information about it. And then you can interrogate and ask questions of it like it's a personal assistant that tells you, hey, yep, this is why I think it's a problem. Um, here's what you can do about it. Um, I think that unless you have like a trusted partner, like kind of, you know, on, on retainer kind of person sitting there in a Slack channel with you, you can get AI to do that exact same thing um, cost effectively for and give it all the context it needs because um, as far as I know, AI is a lot better at understanding the entire corpus of human knowledge than humans are, right? So mm -hmm. um, I I can see us moving in that direction. And I know that that's scaring a lot of the um, existing incumbent um, training firms who are reliant on uh, long, long videos or um, online gamified platforms. And the reason I don't like either of those kind of concepts all that much is because you need to get out of the context of where you're building software and then go into a training environment that's entirely different learning stuff that's not relevant to what you're doing at that point in time and then context switching back to doing development so if you're in the ide itself and you're given advice about what you're writing at that point in time um, that to me seems like a no-brainer for where a new training product should be going now do i want to write that Nah, I'm too lazy. I'm happy to just jump on podcasts and uh, talk to people. That's it. About Tell it. someone else to write it. That's where, that's go, where we're if going. If you can go Cole. solve it, I'll sell it for you, mate. I'll pick up the phone. Sweet. Don't you worry. Okay. Well, I mean, I assume, you know, I do assume that like, and by the way, this is actually something Synopsys back when they were, um, God, what is it? Oh, it was Synopsys before um, they were acquired or rebranded or whatever. What was it? Was it Coverity or Polaris or um black duck um those are the main synopsis mm. code dx here i am this no. listing vendor it was products McGraw and sponsored it was by McGraw and stevens uh <laughs> McGraw and stevens uh anyways whatever doesn't matter before they were before they were acquired by synopsis uh firm out here they had a uh that's what they did they, they put it into an ide but it was like obviously no no such thing as machine learning back then no it uh, was a while ago um, so and it was only obviously Java's maybe, but like it would have been a very early version of, yeah. of that if, if so, but, uh, in any case they tried it, but like, they didn't have the, the power of LLMs to harness. And, uh, and also like on that note, like, you know, I, I keep saying this to people because people keep bringing up hallucinations. I'm like, there's a lot of things you can do to prevent that. And there's so much you can do and there's so many tool sets to do it with. So it's like. More and more when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, you probably just don't. When people say that, like, that's going to, like, no, can't use AI because of hallucinations. Like, well, 
I feel like you don't know enough about AI at that point to uh, to like say to make that statement. You just heard other people say that. That's that's yeah, my it's not so nice cynical view on that now. But um, I, I think it's I quite frustrating, right? When, when people just want to <laughs> just like say, no, this new technology is a challenge, and here are the reasons I don't want to adopt it because, like, you know so on and so forth. I actually think that we should be looking at these kind of things and thinking about how do we bring them into security and be innovative because like we have almost always participated in the industry as laggards because it's just expensive for us to build products that other people may not use because there's no market for securing those things in the future, right? Like I can imagine if I was um, a Golang and I built like a Golang fuzzer or um, something like five years ago, that would have been a great investment. But would I say the same thing about some of the other languages that came out like, um, you know, Ansible or, uh, I don't know, the entire web-free ecosystem probably at this point? So, <laughs> shots fired. But, um, yeah, I, I know that it's, if we also, if you're thinking about information security programs as a whole, though, right, um, the idea is that you don't have a single layer. You can't just rely on developer education to fix vulnerabilities, right? That's why we have static analysis and SCA tools and CI checks. It's why we have peer reviews in the development process. It's why we have um, assurance activities like pen testing and code reviews uh, towards the end of the life cycle. Um, so I think that any arguments that, oh, this training won't be good enough because it can sometimes tell people the wrong thing. Well, shock horror, if you go onto, you know, Stack Overflow, half the answers are garbage and probably created by ChatGPT anyway. <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, yeah. It, yeah. 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 It's 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 taking that expert information or, you know, that corpus of information with a grain of salt, right? And it, developers are doing this naturally. Like, it, you know, even if they are just using Copilot nowadays, right? Oh, you're tabbing through, you're having Copilot generate a function and then you go fix it, right? Like, that's that that's just the way that coding is going and that speeds up your process it's super effective so why are we so yeah why are we so against hallucinations or other things with with the llms and with chat gpt because it's it's going to speed up what we're doing anyways right um yeah we're seeing that with a few of the clients that we deal with who are saying oh like copilot it can introduce vulnerable code so like we should be you know we've we've tested it and sometimes it does it just introduces vulnerable code and then my response to that is why don't you just have an information security program that can deal with the fact that you're writing code twice as fast right like yeah. you, you there's a reason that we have static analysis tools and offensive security and all that jazz right you i think that in time Copilot will start writing better and will secure and safer code and we'll choose mm -hmm. that. But um, I know that just we tend to come from a background of being cynical and fearful about new things as um, security professionals. But I think that's why I, I, one of the reasons I really love AppSec is as a software engineer, my other side is thinking, wow, look at all this cool new technology and fun things we could be doing about time, like, you know, marrying them both together, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's time to do things a little bit differently. Nobody feels happy. I don't know that I would say, because I remember somebody saying something about, oh, um, you know, AppSec. So, some, I forget who it was. I think it was a friend of someone who's working in a different industry had said something about, you know, like security objectively is a failure or whatever. I don't know if I find that to be true. I think from the very get-go, it's a different dynamic from most most things in general, right? Like, um, 
you're kind of you're always you're always trying to trying to play catch up and uh it's a especially if you're a practitioner it's a very defensive thing even if you're not even if you're a consultant you're trying to find the most impactful bugs you know before attackers do or you're trying to help them learn how to secure their code or whatever it is you're you're providing as a service um ultimately we're always trying to to fight folks i don't let me not get on a soapbox but what i'm saying is i don't think we're failing necessarily but i do think there there is a whole set of new new ways that we could be doing things there's new framework risk frameworks that have come out there are new all kinds of new insights that have come out over the last few years then there's the and that's just from like processes and methodologies and things like that and then when you talk about technology there's yeah i mean ai is obviously super super powerful you look at some of the stuff that's out there too especially like i've been playing a lot with Langchain and uh, all that it offers there's other alternatives to Langchain. it's one of the most popular ones right now but when you start to go through and you look at just that one piece of software's um, documentation, you see how many different tool sets there are to work with this new technology, whether it's contextual compression and retrieving documents or whatever the case may be, different LLMs, different embedding models, different vector stores, tons of different options, chaining these things together. And uh, we're doing what with it? You know, I think you're starting to see now companies, just because they have a, you know, they have a financial incentive, uh, product security product companies start to integrate AI in. And I really like what, uh, what uh, Evan is doing at Run Reveal with AI, where he's using that to, to some part of that is with you know generating SQL queries and things like that. I think there's there's some folks that are gravitating towards that, um, and I hope that we don't get stuck in the mud for the rest of other folks and saying like, oh, we just have to outright ban this technology, like we can't use it. You know, you see that you see that knee jerk reaction pretty often, and I don't know if it's the right one. It's, it's not just um, adopting new technology. It's also looking at other disciplines and think, looking at what works and what doesn't work in those. And I think that as software engineers, we almost always like stay to what's tried and proven in software engineering. But like, if I think about some, some different ways that matter to me, it's like you could look at aviation and say, wow, look at how much um, process is involved with actually making planes safe for people to go on. Why can we adopt some of the safety protocols that they use for software development, right? Which is what informs me to think about it's all about process, making sure that people follow a process when they're building software. And that's the, one of the better ways we can go to manage risk. Or we can look at a discipline like, um, oh, I had it off the top of my head, bloody. <laughs> look at me, forgetting my train of thought. Um, so stats. Right? You're not the time, um, so don't, yeah. don't feel bad. So you got... Um, you, you look at look so if we're we're always complaining that we're reactive right so why don't we be proactive so let's go look at um a git repository or just even a collection of git repositories and then just do some statistical analysis across all of them and say to ourselves well we have a key risk resource maybe we need to worry about getting that one person who's written 80 percent of the code base and have someone else also take care of that because resilience to software is important too or maybe we can see that these particular teams continue to introduce these types of vulnerability classes. And maybe we need to go and help them understand about that specific type of thing, right? But I feel like a lot of the um, way that we approach security is that developers write code and then we go and review it and tell them it's bad instead of us proactively seeking out ways that we can help. And, you know, it, these are just ideas, right? Uh, it could be very stupid in practice. But the main thing is that I don't want to go around and try doing things like 
you know, like the whole DevSecOps lifecycle idea of let's just get every SAS, DAS, IAS, RAS, best CAs, bomb, whatever, stick them all in a pipeline. And then suddenly we have a great Christmas tree at the end that tells developers that, holy, we've got security Christmas happening. Look at all the red, amber, and green. Everything is all, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's beautiful, right? I, I think that that model clearly is, hasn't been working. So I want to just like think about other ways of approaching these challenges that aren't informed from what we know doesn't work. So. <laughs> Well, and and to that point, right? Yeah. Like what we know Failure doesn't work. Teacher. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and, but but to that point, right? Like we've got to stop. Uh, we've got to stop pushing that as the solution, right? Like I walk into orgs and that that's the first question. They're like, "Oh, well, we do AppSec." I'm like, "All right, what's your process?" And they're like, "No, no, no. We have uh, you know the SaaS tool and this DAS tool that we're running in our dev our DevOps pipeline." And I was like, "But is anyone looking at it?" No, we just run it because, you know, X vendor or our like, you know, one supplier told us we had to run this to be like to get picked up and get this contract. And so we have security and just the, the fact that they say they have security, right? Like it's, oh, no, right? Like, all right, we're starting from ground zero because the developers haven't even been in the either of those consoles and they don't know that that's what's being generated, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I don't. There's a lot of organizations that do that. They'll just like purchase a product or they'll purchase a service and then think that you know we're good and because they can just check it off. But security is a journey. It's a continuous thing that we iterate on. And um, a lot of people are only just kind of waking up to the fact that it's not a set and forget behavior. Buy a product and everything's sold. And um, unfortunately, the industry has had a lot of corporate capture over the past two decades, I'd say. And that's entirely related to the fact that they're selling products. And until we can get to a point where we can have engineering teams feel engaged and involved and that they can make their own decisions because they've been taught how to use things, being able to understand what products make what kind of real difference and actually understand risk a bit, we're going to be stuck in a cycle where we swap between Fortify to check marks to sneak to SemGrep probably is the next one, I imagine, and uh, getting angry at each one of those because they're all going to have the same issues, right? <laughs> Just yeah. to a slightly better UX. It's all about yep. the processes and helping people understand and make good risk decisions. So yeah. Well, that's a, I, I mean, that, that that's a that's good summary, a, right? Yeah. yeah. So I was going to say, great summary. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to push it too far because, I, I mean, Cole, you have been on for a while. like, I, And I feel like we just started. Like, I'm like looking at the timer being like, crap, we've, we've been going for an hour and 10 and we just started this discussion. But um, yeah, is it? That's why there's part twos. Yeah, exactly. There's going to have to be a part two. Um, and, you know, whether that is on, you know, your podcast, our podcast, like we can share back and forth and, and you know, would definitely love to, continue that discussion especially you know the items that you've seen as effective right like that's that that's what i i keep trying to drive to is how do i help clients get to this point right like recognizing that it's a problem is one thing but how do you overcome those hurdles to the next um, a lot of the discussion in australia is um very much around what doesn't work and i'm really 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 trying to shift it to where have you had success and then trying to collate all that kind of information because i think that just getting a list of all the things that doesn't work isn't that helpful actually it's like all nice and good to come together and have a kumbaya and say yep 
you know, we all suffer the same challenges that I, I really want to, at least for my own nation and probably other people as well, is just get them to think about what's actually working and move them in that direction, you know? So not, yeah. not just like whinge and complain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love whinging and complaining. So <laughs> we, we all do, right? That's where the spicy takes come into play. So, <laughs> Oops, <that fell laughs> yeah, okay. Cool. Um, well, good. Uh, Woohoo. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's, yeah. let's go ahead and wrap it up and then we'll do a, a, a follow up episode sometime in the next couple of months. Um, Cole, if you're up for it, love to have you back on and just keep, keep the conversation going. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on guys. I'm uh, going to go take my kids to school now. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you go do that. I'm going to go take my son to a soccer game or a football game, however you want to call it. Right. Like, depends <laughs> on the country you're in. Um, and yeah, uh, appreciate your time coming on, giving us your insight. There's a lot to think about and di you know, digest from this one. Um, if you are listening and you haven't joined the Slack channel, please do so. Cole's on there. You got further questions for him. Jump in and tag him there, or you know, uh, any other place where they can find you, Cole, where they can reach out. Uh, honestly, um, I run a bunch of community stuff in Newcastle. So if you're if you're in Newcastle, hit me up. Um, if you're in Australia, I'm going to go to B-Sides Canberra next week or to Asus CyberCon the week after. Hit me up on LinkedIn or my website, classcyber.com.au. Um, if you have any uh, just spicy takes you want to run with me or just actually need to talk about training or whatever, just hit me up. Happy to have a, a conversation um, and just help people out around the world. Great. All right. Good deal. Thanks, Cole. Uh, Ken, any final thoughts before we wrap it today? No, I don't think so. Um, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, sorry. Yes, no. This is actually really, thank you, by the way, for those that are, uh, yeah, uh, we people, not just us appreciated your time, Cole. Very, very nice. Uh, thank you, folks. Um, no, uh, so last bit is, I keep mentioning it, but the Flipper Zero has arrived over the weekend for the winner of our uh, SecDim CTF. Um, we are... I forget when, when is the exact end date? Was it Thursday? Was it a week since it started? I forget. It was, exactly it, it, it was a week. So that's tomorrow evening, right? Or tomorrow evening. Yeah. Okay. Tomorrow evening. And yep. so, so far, if you guys will just give me one more second here of your time, uh, I will just share the uh, rankings live real quick so everybody can see them. Um, and so far, uh, oh, well, looks like uh who was that you said matt uh or yes yeah, i think yeah, this I is know. name matt yes they are has he's popped back up yeah yep earlier when i looked it was the score was 240 not 265 and gf 13 579 who i think i know who that is i think it might be greg was uh leading but now we've got a little flip-flop here so uh these these three have been competing pretty hard for uh for top uh, for the top three spots. So um, anyways, yeah, once again, tomorrow night around, I'd say six or 7 PM Eastern, we'll close it out. We'll, we'll uh, get you a final, uh, we'll just say 7 PM Eastern tomorrow. We're going to close it out. Um, and then we will uh, um, announce the winners and uh, hand out the top, the prizes of the top three uh, participants. Yeah. Sound about right. Sweet. Yep. Sounds about right. All right. Good deal. Well, thanks everybody for joining tonight and we will, or this morning, Cole, 
and we'll catch everyone online. Thanks again. See you, everyone.